Hi there gang and welcome to episode 3 of the Racing Central podcast, where simmers of yore talk in a grizzled room and sit in darkness. I'm John Denton and with me once again I have Simon Croft and Tim Wheatley. So here we are again Tim, it seems like people are actually listening to us. Yeah, it's been quite nice to see some of the stats and things. It's uh, Because you're on every platform, it's a little bit spread out, so sometimes it's a bit hard to get an idea of, the, of numbers, but it's nice to see them actually going up. How are things going, Simon? Yeah, not so bad. Not so bad. It's nice to be back here. I can't believe another month's passed, but we'll be doing the Christmas special soon, no doubt. <laughs> can't wait. Okay, so we're going to jump right in today with uh, to, with Tim and uh, Simon's subjects of discussion because um, basically because we haven't really been doing that much simming in the last month. Um, so Tim, do you want to get us started, get the ball rolling? Yeah, well, um, we were just kind of talking the other day and I brought up um, a Papyrus software build that, uh, that, that I got access to. And um, if I go back to an interview that I did with... Uh, Richard Yazzie, who used to work for uh, Papyrus, he drew up a uh, Grand Prix Legends 1972 uh, si- uh, simulation. And um, I now have access to a really, really, really early build of that. Um, and so does everyone else, actually. It's actually been on the internet for um, a, a, a little while um, because it's what um, Sean Nash also used as his test bed for the Xbox. So if you've seen an Xbox build hang, um, hanging around, which had the uh, NASCAR racing for car body, um, but the Grand Prix Legends tracks in it, that's actually the 1972 uh, Grand Prix Legends build. Uh, so the build uh, has you driving around in a, a bodied NASCAR that is actually handles like a, I don't know, a Lotus 72 or something. Yep. Interesting. And I'm surprised more people aren't aware of this because uh, for a very long time, GPL two was on on the tip of everyone's tongue, wasn't it? Yeah, there was. You know, we wrote letters to Sierra, yeah. who obviously will have just laughed at that, and you know, uh, done absolutely nothing with it, and um, all all sorts of things to try to make this happen. But um, but yeah, it was actually a thing that they put at least some amount of effort into. Um, and I actually thought that it was a kind of weird build or it was just a test build that they had done, you know, specifically for the Xbox. Um, but when I, uh, when I asked someone who works at iRacing, um, about that particular build, um, they said that it was the 72 build. That's, uh, crazy really. And so if we can imagine what, uh, GPL 1972 would have been about, I'm, guessing we'd have a very much closer field than necessarily than in 1967 um, and probably a, a group of cars that were all going to um, all going to have quite similar performance levels to uh, run closely together so the question is why haven't they made this sim now we need to start writing a letter to iRacing don't we now <laughs> well I, I think unfortunately the you know the reason why a lot of historic simulations just don't get made is because um, the publishers are scared of them and um, you know that that kind of leads on to my topic which is uh, sort of wish list simulations um, and the the things that we would like to build if we you know were in a position where we won the lottery and you know could fund a studio for a few years or something like that um, 
you know what what would we want to get made I think um, you'd have to hope to assume that licensing is not an issue as well because I guess now yeah. it, you know if I racing decided they wanted to make a GPL2 right now or, or indeed just do a, a, a modern remake of GPL like you know we're seeing a lot of modern remakes of games aren't we um, the licensing would obviously be an issue for the F1 F1 cars in it and F1 circuits well, um, to be fair, Grand Prix Legends didn't have an F1 license. It um, it just had the uh, cars and tracks. Um, and uh, a notable piece of trivia is that Honda actually did say yes, uh, but they were too late. Um, <laughs> ah, and so that's, that's why we got the yeah. But yeah, they they didn't have an F1 license, and um, also the current owners of F1 don't owe, own anything before I think 1988 or somewhere around there with the FISA FOCA, you know, wars. Right. Yeah. No, that's right. Because uh, I think that if you're on F1 TV, the um, they show they have all of the old races available, don't they? But they only go back so far. Yeah. 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 yeah they they have to license anything that's outside of their. Um, ownership. So I mean, that suggests that it's not going to it's not going to be impossible to make such a game nowadays. No, I, I I think it's absolutely possible. You could go and you can license um, all of the individual cars and tracks, and I, I don't think you would have that much of a problem with that. Um, and I don't think the user would have a problem with it. It's um, I, I know that Bernie did try to um, copyright uh, Grand Prix. Um, in the past, but obviously that's really difficult for him to, yeah. um, to say that he owns. It. Yeah, um, but yeah, that's that's why uh, you'll you'll see a lot of descriptive use of things as being Grand Prix cars rather than F one cars is is because it's it's something that you can still say. Um, yeah. When so you if we're putting licensing to one side and stuff, or it's maybe not an issue though. Are you thinking of this as in? Now you're saying, right, you've won the lottery, you can make what you want. Are you thinking just for yourself to have it on your hard drive at home or to actually see it released as a title? No, I would definitely want to see it released. I, I think, um, you know, we're, we're, a, we're a very similar bunch when it comes down to it. I, I think um, there's a lot of people that want the same kind of things. Um, and while, while you two might have different ideas of what you would make to me, I think there's definitely people out there that would want the same thing that I want. So come on and hit us with it. What's your dream uh, sim then, Tim? Well, I actually have a few. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would really like to see um, a uh, proper remake of uh, Spirit of Speed. I, I think there's there's definitely something to be said about the uh, 30s, um, and then uh, the 50s. Um, you know the yeah. Sterling Moss era, um, and then uh, I, I would desperately like to see a uh, really good remake of Grand Prix Legends um, I'd, I'd go back to 67 again and then actually um, I'd like to see 1991 um, yeah. the uh, Formula 1 Grand Prix season just basically rebuilt in a uh, modern guise and then um, other than that the thing that I really would like to see re um, almost a uh, remake again is uh, 1994 uh, NASCAR. Um, there was a tire war. There was two different uh, tires, um, one of which basically couldn't lap uh, Daytona without failing. Um, but it was, you know, that's that's a typical tire war, pretty yeah, much. Yeah. 
Um, and yeah, it did just the, the way that the cars drove um, and the the nostalgia is a really big factor with all of my picks there. You know, I, I think um, just just the nostalgia of that era. Um, you know, it, it, it was the end of the Dale Earnhardt era and the beginning of the Jeff Gordon era. So yeah. it was just a really, really special season. The interesting thing that though is that a number of your picks there were things you know they they predate you so it's not just about nostalgia mm-hmm. taking the 19 let's say the 1953 f1 season you know you never you never went to any of those races you never saw it. so you you have a um a nostalgia that's come from your interest and study of the sport and so on and when we yeah. when we got grand prix legends in 1998 i don't know about you but I knew a lot about Formula One, but I didn't know a lot about Formula One in the 60s. And that game actually piqued my interest in learning more and more. And, and like Steve Spitz's uh, manual, particularly reading that, gave me a, a lot of information that that I didn't know about. And it actually, uh, I became far more interested in that era of, of Formula One racing as a result of the game. We increased, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, publishers or, or game developers might be a little bit scared of historic content in the sense that it, you know, that the more modern stuff certainly gets more interest from maybe the majority, uh, probably certainly from younger players who may look at, say, even a 1991 Formula One car, for instance, and, and that's well before they were born and, and what do they know about it, you know? Um, I don't know what I don't know what my question is really. It's sort of like you know they they're fearful of historic content, but if you look at people like you and I, Tim, we became interested in the historic content because of the quality of the sim that was GPL, right? Yeah, yeah. And therefore, I, creating something. I mean, I think GPL is a difficult one because it didn't sell that well on release, but compare. But despite that, twenty five years on, people are still playing it every week, right? And there aren't many sims that you can say that for. Yeah, I, I do. Um, I, I do think we have to think about the fact that Grand Prix Legends was probably only sold for two or three years as well. Yeah. Um, every single modern sim, uh, uh, simulator is a sort of 10 year project. Um, and it, it kind of it makes me wonder whether if someone um, built a platform that was truly based around historic racing and um, the cars that, in my opinion, are just so much more fun to drive, um, whether it wouldn't be successful. I, I, I actually think that it would. Um, and it, it just, it's, it's, it's a little bit frustrating that it's, um, you know, there's just this constant flow towards modern GT3, um, yeah. you know. I think, uh, then, do, I think- in, in, a, in a way, the Gran Turismo series offers an interesting parallel there as well, in that actually a lot of the cars from that series were not cars that people, say, in the UK knew about or had a huge love for, yeah. but actually a huge amount of interest then developed in them from those games. And some of that is sort of, you know, relative to the time of release, older cars, so somewhat historic or retro. But a lot of it's just, you know, you expose people to new things, you're going to find a new market for it, and people aren't going to fall in love with or passionate about something they don't see. So I can understand how from a publisher point of view, you know, I'm sure if you crunch the numbers, there is more appeal out there if you stick out F1 2024 than if you stick out F1 1979. 
but you know there's plenty of games out there and plenty of people buying them and there's plenty of market spaces to kind of segment or create i think yeah, and, and that that is an interesting thing too, because if, I mean, if you think about just the risk versus uh, reward, I mean, it, you can look at, because it's public, on um, the fact that Codemasters had to secure like a hundred million dollars worth of, um, of, of in investment right before they got the F1 license. Um, and if you're going out and you're licensing like a 1972 Lotus and, and stuff like that, in comparison to licensing modern F1, uh, this it's so much less of a risk, mm-hmm. um, and 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 the potential reward is still actually there. Um, you know, you 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 could get a really well-selling product. Well, and and, and these cars still exist to be able to mm-hmm. model them as well. You know, like the, there's mm-hmm. a lot of you know. The 1930s stuff would be more difficult, but a lot of those cars still exist, and a lot of them are still running. You even see them at historic events, you know, yeah. like Goodwood and so on. I think if you look at something like Automobilista, which obviously took a bit of a niche approach of a lot of its sort of Brazilian-based content, you know, not necessarily talking about historic here, but just, you know, it's not stuff that you see everywhere else, and the quality of the title still wins through, and, you know, again, you, you find a new market, you find new fans for something that they otherwise wouldn't see. I think Automobilista 2 in of the modern sims is the one doing the most of this though because they're continually releasing not only old uh, historic cars group C cars and and historic F1 cars and and if you know other categories um they are releasing older versions of the circuits when they release them and I think that's that's a really nice touch you know you do, you don't just get spa but you get spa modern spa you get 1990 spa you get spa from the 1960s as well and they're obviously different uh, versions quite radically different versions so it's not just like a reskin of the track for the the team have to do a lot of work on that yeah i i had this grand dream with 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 our factor two of kind of making it into a lot of my kind of wish list and it just you know none of it went forward but um you know i was um i i had like i've said before the um the 1966 cars i had contact with everyone that i wanted to license i had them all lined up to license and you know that that just never went ahead um although we did license the uh, uh dan uh, gurney's eagle which which was never built um and i also did the same for the indy 500 as well um i had uh the uh, 95 Reynard, um, I, I had the, the um, 86 March, which were kind of um, the typical cars of their era. And then um, I had uh, the 1968 Eagle, which one um, was, was talking to Lotus about these uh, 65 Lotus. I had the um, 1961 Cooper, which was the first rear engine car there. Um, I had the um, um, AJ Watson Roadster, which was the big front-engined um, car. Abom- for... Abomination. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I I really wanted to make a kind of through the ages kind of Indy 500 yeah. um, well, I selection. Mean, and, and this is Automobilista 2 as a number of those cars. Are, the 95 Reynard is in there, for mm-hmm. instance. And um, Yeah, exactly. It's, it's great that they're, they're, they picked up your baton, clearly, but... Um, no, I mean, I, it's about the tracks as well, you know, like I've been racing the Lotus 79 in iRacing and I, and I think that's a great car. And I, and I think the, 
you know, the, the Lotus 49 in iRacing is good as well. I don't think of the of all the cars in Grand Prix Legends, I kind of dislike the Lotus 49 to drive the most. Um, but for what that car represents, it's a great car. Um, but the biggest problem in iRacing is that you're racing them on modern circuits, and it yeah. it's um, it, it's it's doesn't it doesn't fit in your mind, you know. And especially you know this week, for instance, myself and a fellow racer were talking about Jerez. We were at her, the circuit of Jerez, and it's got so much runoff here and there, and you can go incredibly wide out of corners, and it just seems. Like when you go to other circuits, maybe like Brands Hatch or Alton Park or things like that, where there isn't, it doesn't have that, they're much more sort of old school circuits. You get a much better feeling of what it was like to race these these cars. But then when you jump into something like um, Automobilista 2 or um, Assetto Corsa's got some historic tracks as well, um, you, you get a much better feel for the era similar to how you did with GPL, where it's like you feel like you're you're taking part in a Grand Prix in 1967 or whenever, you know, like, um, another point as well there on Assetto Corsa, of course, Tim, you mentioned the 50s, and this is going to be my next point, is about difficulty. Um, obviously, the fear of difficulty came from GPL, because it, it became one of those, it's definitely one of those sims that you have to work really hard at. And the, there's a V12 Maserati 250F in Assetto Corsa, that I think I might, that. yeah, it's superb. But I think it might be possibly one of the most difficult cars in all of sim racing <laughs> to to drive. Um, you know, it's got these sort of horse and cart size wheels, and um, is that a concern? I think you know when you look at um, the historic series that iRacing run, for, both for the Lotus Seventy Nine, as I mentioned, the Lotus Forty Nine. They also have a Group C uh, car. Um, Nissan ZXT, they're very small communities. They don't get a huge amount of participation, and part of yeah. that is because it's going to take you a good few hours in the car to get yourself up to speed. It's not the sort of thing you can just jump into. But is that an issue of selection? I think, um, you know, I, I we may have even said in the last episode that you know if 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 something has too many cars you know you can always hop to a car that you find easier and and that might be um kind of part of the problem is that you can go and you can find a car that you're instantly better at makes you feel better about yourself um or you can actually be challenged and try to and, and try to beat that which is something that we've also talked about in the mm. past um, get get to feel bad about yourself instead yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I think um, there's something to be said for having a, a, a field full of cars, like it was in Grand Prix Legends. You know, you, you, you would have um, all of the races at like uh, uh, Monza, for example, because it had basically um, like four right turns and then flat lefts. Um, and you would have everybody in the uh, Lotus 49. Um, and the, and, there, and there was me in the Honda, and one of the primary reasons why I would drive it is to make them feel worse about themselves when I beat them. Um, and uh, so it, like, yeah, <laughs> it, uh, it it really there's 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 definitely something to be said about car selection there because if if you have the option to go and drive the Lotus, there's a huge amount of people that are going to go and do that, and I think that's the same thing that happens on a on a grander scale with the series, you know, like uh, pe people are going to go 
and um, race a different iRacing series that they can feel better about themselves in. GT3 cars, for instance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just, just going back to your point, John, about like historic tracks and historic cars together, and you, you're sort of saying oh, that gives you a better feel. There's also obviously the reality that those cars were developed to race in the environments they had at the time. And like, so in thinking about kind of yeah. this dream scene thing, one, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, I, my mind went to kind of rallying and rally cross. And, you know, the, a lot of people hold the Group B era as the kind of golden era of rallying, but Group B cars are completely ill-suited to a lot of the stages that have come since because they're just not equipped to handle them. You know, they didn't have a handbrake that you could use. That's why they always do three-point turns or really awkward scrapes around the wall on a hairpin, for example. So, you know, when you think about, say, the Group B cars that have been in, in modern titles, Rally titles often they're stuck on just modern stages, and it's not to say you can't drive them on there. It's not to say you couldn't do that today in real life, just like you couldn't take a Lotus Seventy Nine and drive it around modern Monza or something if you had the the money and the, the the time and stuff. But really, if you want to enjoy Group B rally cars, you need era accurate stages to to drive them on. Yeah. Um, and I, I do think it's it goes beyond feel. It's also actually kind of. You know, you, there's no point taking a Peugeot 205 T16 around a go-kart track. You know, like it's not going to give you, you're not sampling it in its sort of natural environment, as it were. Didn't Rally Trophy have uh, Lancia Stratos at the top when you got you had to complete the game almost, didn't you, to get to that level? I, I was just actually reading an article um, on uh, a rally trophy on how the press hated it because it was difficult yeah right <laughs> that's it yeah. and i mean this is your other problem sure like you might not get the publisher of funding behind a, um, a sim if it's looking like it's going to be difficult or challenging you also may not get the press on your side and i think the mainstream video game press anyway are they they largely turned away from sim racing I think as a niche market they will cover games like Gran Turismo they'll cover Forza um, but it's you know think that you know they will talk about Assetto Corsa Competizione they'll talk about the release uh, you will see on somewhere like Rock Paper Shotgun for instance or Eurogamer now Eurogamer was better um, coverage generally but the they they would say you know this game has been released uh, and there may not be a full review of it um, because they, they they haven't got the personnel to cover it, but also they don't, I guess, figure that much of their audience are, are looking at it. Yeah, that's, I mean, press press coverage is an interesting thing. As I've kind of looked back through the history of sim racing and like media coverage and stuff, um, there's probably only been three people that have reviewed the greatest sims of all time. Um, uh, you know, if, if if people like them didn't exist, I kind of wonder how the genre would have done, um, you know, compared to how it did. I mean, it, it, it never really set the world alight in terms of sales, but it um, if if people like um, um, a, um, Andy Mahood and, and, you know, people like that weren't actually around uh, yeah. to review and actually give these sims a chance with the difficulty that they actually presented to the user I mean I, I I don't really know how the genre would have done but that said in the 90s I was I was similarly I was looking through some old issues of PC zone magazine recently um, perversely and uh, it was interesting how 
much coverage there was of not yeah. on, not only um, you know every you know IndyCar racing to NASCAR racing they're all getting uh, full, the full review treatment and everything they maybe even be mentioned on the front cover and things like that but the whole market for PC games at the time was much 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 smaller this nowadays so many games are released every month that uh, a, a title like PC Gamer has to pick and choose what they're going to review whereas I feel like in, in those days they were more likely looking at the release schedule and saying you know what else are we going to fill the rest of the pages of the magazine up with yeah i i think um what's really interesting there is that um like if you look at the, the uh, press release for the nvidia mv1 which was their first ever uh graphics chip um they have a quote from dave kamer in there yeah uh, and you know what's been really um what's What's happened again and again and again is that uh, it's sim racing developers that have, that that historically broke ground on new new tech, new features, um, supporting this stuff, and uh, yeah, it, it really and I think flight sims as well. Yeah, 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 but it's but it's simulation that's that's yeah. really kind of pushed the edges of what a system could do. You know, like we we we've all kind of had the the era where basically we couldn't have nice graphics because the computer was too busy doing the physics, yeah, yeah. Um, which which I think we've actually left now. Like like I don't think that's that's actually a thing anymore. And if anybody says that, they're you know wrong. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, it kind of it it is really interesting how um, how often uh, really good racing sims actually broke new ground in some way that really wasn't related to simulation at all, but it was something that was completely new. Um, and I, I don't know if that might lead into Simon's topic. Possibly so. That's a beautiful segue. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I I, I can't remember what I was thinking about specifically. I, I think it was, um, I was thinking about VR, but basically the topic I want to discuss today is kind of, kind of loosely call it game changes. And it's it's things, it could be kind of technology um, or titles or features that have like, for, for us really kind of changed our sort of experience and, and the outlook. On when it comes to simming and then also kind of it got me thinking about looking forward you know what's possibly on the horizon so I mean there's a few kind of to give some sort of starters there's a few sort of obvious ones so you know we you two have talked about some of the the, the really old titles that you you've played or been playing and obviously kind of that predates even using a wheel um well I suppose it's not actually that far back if you're talking about kind of a PlayStation on the pad and stuff but for me now, if I'm talking simming, then obviously something like force feedback with a wheel is kind of, it's, it's there's no sort of, it's not an option not to use those things. What I was really surprised about, and um, I heard other people say this, I think I heard you say it, John, was that, so I was relatively late in a sense, and given it's still a, a fairly niche thing into to VR, and I basically got very generously gifted one of the original Rift units. And when I first tried it, it was kind of what I was expecting, but at the same time, 
sort of impressed me in ways that I don't think any words could have really kind of conveyed. And then I, I just very quickly realised that I can never, I don't think I can play racing sims without VR. You again. can't go back to Pancake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, it was, I remember I um, I had an old track IR unit, the kind of head tracking thing, which gave a little bit of a taste of this in a sense, but it also never worked. As in, not that it technically didn't work, but for me, the experience of turning your head, but then having to turn your eyes to stay looking in the same direction kind of was quite unnatural. You didn't feel, what, I don't think you felt anchored to the car in track IR. I think it worked yeah. very good for flight sims. Yeah. Um, but like, even still in flight sims, where you um, need to understand, say, where the car is sliding, um, and where you're looking relative to what that sliding, it wasn't clear on a flat screen with drag IR, I think. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I've realised <clears throat> with, with the things where I've said, oh, yeah, no, that's a, that for me is kind of once you've gone there, you can't sort of go back. There's sort of two things. In a perhaps obvious sense, it's things that basically move you towards realism. You know, it's much more realistic to be using a wheel with force feedback than to be using keys on a keyboard. It's much more realistic to be using VR and have like a 3D environment you can look around in rather than looking at a, a pancake, as you put it. But I think it's also a kind of about what makes it a much more natural experience. It's where you're not having to sort of suspend your belief or you're not having to kind of mentally make the transition of, right, I'm playing a game, but I'm kind of going to make, in my head, I'm going to convince myself I'm not. All of these things are things that basically much more replicate the real life experience in a way whereby it's much easier to lose yourself in what you're doing. You can go and drive around and you are highly immersed. And when you take a headset off after 45 minutes and you're sweating and everything else, you kind of almost, I find out like, oh yeah, I'm sat here. I forgot about that. And they're things that I find I find really hard now to think about not not having as part of the experience. And then the, when it comes to kind of more of the software or feature side, there's a number of things. So I think like laser scanned tracks have really pushed the envelope hugely when it comes to accuracy. I do think I could live without them. I do think I could still drive and enjoy a title that perhaps even had a wildly inaccurate track just as long as I wasn't trying to convince myself it was the real track and just said it's a track, you know, this is my playground sort of thing. Well, I, th I mean, I think what it is is that the fidelity of laser scan tracks raised an expectation now. So mm -hmm. if you have a track that is not laser scanned, but still very high fidelity in terms mm -hmm. of there are cambers, there are bumps, there are even yeah. grooves <clears throat> that you can feel in the track, um, you know, I think that laser scan tracks actually drove forward tyre modelling in the sense mm. that um, before we had such fidelity on the track surface, tire, the tyre model was getting away with a lot more and the fidelity of the surface started to highlight problems with the tyre model, um, which were, you know, like, uh, there's, for instance, if there's a steep crest that's highlighting the load change, you could shave that crest down, whereas it, in... If you're if you're sticking with the point cloud for the laser scan, then you've got to do it as it is. I actually wonder on that because I've I've, been, I've thought for a long time. Um, 
Like if you take um, R Factor 1, for example, and you put um, a laser scan track in it, which there was a couple for R Factor 1, um, you know, or you took iRacing's laser scan um, and were able to put it into NASCAR 2003, I actually wonder how much difference um, people would actually be able to feel. Well, I, I think that's an interesting point, you see, because I think the early days of iRacing wasn't radically different to NASCAR Racing 2003. I know that's yeah, not I mean, a fashionable um, thing to say. Um, yeah. And I think that was possibly where where I'm getting the example that it started to highlight some of the problems. Um, maybe less so on some of the oval tracks, I'm not sure. Um, but certainly... Um, Lime, Lime Rock was one of the early tracks in iRacing yeah. and you could it, some of the issues with the physics that you know that I'm sure they've been developed but were more or less lifted and shifted from NASCAR Racing 2003 um, were being highlighted by that track alone where it's got the you know steep drop-offs and occasional cambers and things like that that were causing issues on the t on the tyre model and you know probably led it on to you know David Kamer then developing the tire model to what it's become today um so yeah i mean i th i think that's an interesting point that if you were to take the the laser scan track and put it into um an old sim like let's say netcar Net pro um would it's a it's an open question mark as to whether it would suddenly elevate that sim to being even better I think it would in certain respects, but I think then then there'd be other respects where you would highlight issues with Netcar Pro that you never realised were there, uh, yeah. because the tracks that were in it never really showed them. You can imagine quite easily that the the frequency rate at which dampers are being modelled and things like that yeah. in the older titles when they were lower are suddenly going to become much more problematic, where you've not got a polygon representing two square metres of track, but suddenly it's representing a small shifting kind of a strip of new asphalt that's being laid down or something like that but it's in terms of your point john about kind of it's not necessarily i think your point is that it's not necessarily the accuracy is actually the real how realistic the surfaces are and stuff i think another a good example there is um richard burns rally which obviously we've, we've spoken about before and that of that has kind of real stages but they're not laser scanned they're not sort of to that sort of level of precision but what richard burns rally did i think no title before that had done when it came to kind of roads and and, and loose surfaces and stuff was it had accurate kind of um road profiles the camber and the crown of the road and that that's absolutely fundamental to the experience you would not be able to drive that game realistically if it didn't have that realistic track profile because you wouldn't be able to use the slopes to turn the car and stuff yeah that's that's a that's a massive point and yeah that that really does highlight the fact that you know the track changes towards laser scan or just realism you know was was massively um in, in, important if you think about the uh, colin mccray rally franchise for example um i remember one of the stages there was kind of five six cars wide yeah. Um, and it and it's supposed to be a regular road, you know, with one lane going each 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 way, um, and yeah, that just the, the the fact that Richard Burns Rally basically gave you this little sort of claustrophobic strip of 
you know, surface to actually drive on was 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 really massive. And yeah, I, I think um, the evolution of tracks has been massively important. Probably, in my opinion, anyway, more than physics within the last twenty years. Because, like I say, I, I don't know really how much advancement there's been since R Factor One, um, since NASCAR two thousand three in the actual underlying physics. Um, you know, they've they've maybe upped their rates and 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 and, and things like that. But um, I think you could probably just make some really minor changes to something that ran on a kind of five hundred megahertz potato, um, you know, and, and put it on a modern system up um, up, um, up up its data rates and get something actually really impressive out of it. Yeah, I mean that comes down to the question of of how it feels rather than whether it's accurate or not, though, doesn't it necessarily? Mm. And I think I think there's an awful lot more nowadays going on under the skin, um, certainly in a few of the sims that you don't necessarily feel or aren't necessarily a hundred percent aware of unless you're really digging into the details. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the reality is that if if you take Grand Prix Legends out for a drive now, or NASCAR Racing 2003, or uh, NECAR Pro, or um, I guess even like GTR 2, then you're going to have an enjoyable time. Those sims, mm -hmm. they do feel good. They feel like driving cars. So. Mm. Yeah. The other area I was thinking of with tracks that was really a, a sort of a big game changer, and, and this is where, you know, again, it's maybe not in the vehicle simulation, it's more in the in simulation of the environment. The is real road as it's called in R Factor, live yeah. track as it's called elsewhere. Uh, I don't know. Live the 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 implementation of the wider environment. You know the inf influence of temperature on the track. The influence of um, build up of grip from uh, running on the track. Marbles, etc., etc. I mean, I think the marbles are a kind of minor point of it. Really, um, it's more how the track can feel different in different temperature conditions obviously it changes the performance as well you know the lap times you're able to extract from it this actually changed the game in quite an interesting way there are two things really that could have been seen as detriment well there's one thing could be seen as detrimental which is that you know in terms of sheer motor racing and racing pleasure you have the concept that the track might be less grippy offline which makes it more difficult to overtake um, I know people. I remember people complaining about that with with live track, um, but the you know to me it's a as somebody who's raced on real tracks, it's it's a huge step forward in realism because this is how tracks really go. But something I always used to remember, and certainly in the GPL V Rock days, there used to be I, I can't remember was it on, it was maybe on V Rock. There used to be like these league tables of lap times on each circuit, and you could see whenever. Uh, somebody set a faster time and everybody would just be hot lapping all the time and because the circuits were static and the cars were static the performance you could you could measure your performance directly against everybody um whereas now when you see that comparison within iRacing on you on garage 61 or whatever they have to detail this lap time was set uh, um, with this track condition in this temperature with this relative humidity uh, wind in this direction you know like in all of those things are influencing that potential lap time but it comes down it, it establishes the reality that just setting that one peak lap time is not what motor racing is about um, 
and you know I think in the past with um, with sim racing hot lapping used to be a very big thing because of that and it yeah it still is a big thing I think but it's just has less relevance really you look at somebody setting that peak time and you go okay but they they made sure the conditions were 100% perfect for performance and that's not that's not reality you know if I'm going to race on uh, on a circuit I'm going to automatically generate the conditions and I'm going to have to deal with what what I get yeah the only like real hot lapping that I see now is uh, the F1 series and that kind of drives me a little bit crazy um like not that the actual people setting the world records do this but there's um with uh F1 21 and I think every title before that if you locked the title to a lower frame rate then the curbs were flat um <laughs> oh. you know and it just it just would drive me a little bit crazy kind of um that's a little bit different to just setting the temperature yeah as low as it'll like, go or anything yeah, yeah you're you're literally driving a different track to yeah. everybody else um you know and uh do the yeah, f1 it, games have any live track technology or anything I think they just brought it in, but it's not—it's um, not actually putting the marbles and things where the actual racing line is correctly. So I think it's pre-baked. Yeah. Um, so you know they're they're basically going back to like 2004 with GTR yeah. tech there. Um, so yeah. <laughs> um, Shade. It, it, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, not not to say that you know it's not difficult to do it um you know in in the way that i think r factor 2 did it first um which was terence groaning um you know i i think uh when that was first announced and it came out everybody was really excited about it you know and and like you said you know it's there's a lot more realism in that yeah. but um you know kind of going back to my wish list thing and how how you know the publisher might be afraid of things being too difficult um, you know, the, the track evolution during an event added a, a massive layer of difficulty that I think a lot of sim racers still have a massive problem with um, because they kind of expect to be able to go into the turn and do the same thing that they did last time. Um, and yeah, it, it kind of... But right now they're not getting that, though. you know, in, in modern sims now, are they? You know, Ultimate Vista 2, iRacing... Set of course of competizione, you know, in iRacing, a cloud can come over and the feel feeling of the track, depending on the car and how critical it will be for that car, the feeling of the track can change quite a lot. Yeah, I, I just remember a lot of the kind of um, almost like support issues is, you know, why why wasn't I able to do this? And it was, oh, but it's yeah. because your tyres were cold or it's, it was because, the, you know, the, the track wasn't rubbered in. And it was like again and again and again and again. Um, the age-old uh, problem of assuming that a problem with the either user or the um, or actual real-life physics is a problem with the with the sin, like a bug, you know. Yeah, it's a very busy. Well, on, on, it's on an assumption about, people make. Yeah, um, on on that topic though, and and thinking of the parallel when we're talking about like you know perhaps publishing more niche or less popular content, but then you create the market. When you introduce a feature like this and get a load of people saying, you know, why is this happening? Why is that happening? I can Im I imagine there's a sort of growing pain there, but there's a learning curve. Mm -hmm. And then once people are aware of this and understand it, they know. 
yeah. and they'll know oh, it, yeah. it happens like, again. And so it's it's a it's a transition basically of look, you've had it your way all this time, and now it's changing, and you're going to have to. Yeah, learn. and then people will always go to the forum and ask the question, and and always be told to use the search facility. Yeah. <laughs> And, and get no help at all. Yeah. 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 I mean, on, on on that point, though, I mean, you know, going back to Grand Prix Legends again, I mean, that's why for a long time everybody in sim racing thought that difficulty meant realistic oh, um, yeah. is because Grand Prix Legends was the benchmark and it was difficult. Um, but, yeah, the, it, took a, it took a while. It, it, it even took me a while to get from the fact that I couldn't go into the middle of a turn and break um, you know, in Grand Prix Legends, because the car was going to swap ends, oh. um, and yeah, just kind of um, that that step, and people having to get used to the step of a track not having grip all of a sudden, um, you know, and, and and stuff like that. It really was difficult for for, uh, for people. I think what it is though is about education and um, and it's a learning process. As so, it seems it's not really something that's difficult if you understand what's happening right so yeah. it you know this is why sims in the old days used to have a doorstep manual and because they would explain all these things in detail and, you know if you read if you look at the manual for indycar racing one it, it explains a great deal of, of stuff in there um and steve smith's manual as i mentioned with gpl does as well like you know and Similar to you in GPL, you know, I probably spent hour after hour crashing for long enough before I actually read that Steve Smith manual, right? It's 100 pages or whatever, yeah. and I was not going to sit down and read 100 pages before I started driving the sim, was I? No, I mean, and, and, and what it comes down to in, in the end, I think, is the fact that people people figure out racing sims by going over the limit and then coming back down to it rather than working up which is um, the opposite of what people do in real life yeah yeah, yeah. So, and <laughs> if 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 you worked up to the grip level on a changeable racetrack then you you'd be absolutely fine but that's not how how historically sim racers and gamers have actually done it and the, perhaps the irony there is that actually if you if you make it more realistic and sort of quote unquote hard in a sense of being punishing Perhaps then it would create that mindset of oh let's build up to it rather than oh we've smashed just reset and off we go mm. you know and this takes us back to our previous conversation you know if if you crash I'm, I'm not I don't suppose any publisher is going to release this game but if you crash <laughs> and then you can't play the game for a week because your car's getting repaired this is your this is my wish list sim like if you go out on track you might be a bit more hesitant but yeah I do think like just just generally actually in terms of <clears throat> I mean some of these things are about kind of. I guess it's framed under the conversation we're having about features, but it's also just learning how to drive. I, I remember it was in, in in playing Sims where I realized a bit sort of by myself and, and also in conjunction with reading comments that, for example, when you're understeering, you don't just put more lock on, you open up the steering a bit to regain the grip. And it's one of these things where it's it's a bit like learning to ride a bike. When you haven't got that sort of muscle memory or that kind of in, intuition, it feels counterintuitive. It's like when people slam the brakes on when they're sliding in the snow or something and then they just spin off. Yeah. That thing of like, well, you might think, oh, hang on, why didn't this happen or why didn't it happen? But it doesn't automatically mean it's wrong. And also once you learn, you, you're better for it. And then you kind of grow in, in terms of your ability to handle these situations. And 
I think a lot of things like you know developing developing circuits and everything else are all just a part of that. It's whether people are willing to in and this again goes back to the conversation you were making, John, about flight sims and stuff. It's are people willing to invest the time and get the reward out of it, or do they just want the superficial I'm a hero straight off the bat experience? And you know, there's people who fall in each category and I think we all know which side we fall on that. And Yeah, and I think um like the other thing at the moment in Sims is there's so much choice, as Tim was mentioning earlier, you know, like you don't have to persevere with the Lotus 49 in iRacing because you can go off and, and drive the MX-5 or something. Because, you know, so if you're having that difficulty, uh, taking the choice to commit to that car and, and learn it and put in, you know, like I'd honestly say um, you need a minimum of three hours in a car before you're going to be that confident with it, even a good car. But the Lotus 49, you probably need more than that, undoubtedly need more than that. And to get to the point where you're going to be very good and able to set the car up well and understand all of the setup adjustments and things like that, you're looking at 15 or 20 hours and sticking with one car for that long. Uh, I don't think a lot of people do that. And you know, in this post Gran Turismo era, where in Gran Turismo you're doing three lap races, three or five lap races in in a different car, every single race that you do, you're jumping into something different. Um, this profusion of choice is what people have become used to, and there is still a niche. There are still people like us, and there's still lots of people that are racing these historics and racing uh, more niche, even non-historic cars um, that might be more tricky to to get under the skin of, but um, I think the majority like to jump around, they like to jump in a car, not have to learn it to literally be Michael Schumacher the moment they leap into that car and possibly winning everything uh, because they are indeed the finest racing driver that has ever graced the sport. But just, just going back to the topic of wishless sins, and one thing I was sort of thinking about was that so like Rally Cross is a series that I really like and it's featured in a few titles and just just very recently there's been some content released on that. But it's never been covered, I'm pretty sure, it's never been included in a game in the way that, say, Tim, you were thinking about when you're talking about your wishlist of like, you know, it's this year and it's this series and stuff. Yeah. And I was almost thinking about, I was thinking about a kind of parallel of what, how, how would I see Rallycross say implemented in a sim and that I was sort of my mind went back to kind of the old Toka games and um certainly in Toka 2 I'm not so sure about Toka 1 where you had you have all the tracks and all the cars are touring cars and you have the support series and stuff but what you would generally do when you play that is do a series and so what you're doing is you're com you, you could obviously just jump into hot maps or hot races or whatever but basically you're committing yourself to saying right I'm going to do 10 races in this one car yep. or, or, or whatever and I was thinking you know so it, it's changed a bit rally cross these days but going back not all that long the top tier used to have three divisions you'd have like 1600 front wheel drive you'd have two litre naturally aspirated rear wheel drive and then you'd have two litre turbo four wheel drive and I think well if you've got say eight or nine rounds in a in a series you start in a 1600 car I'm going to take a Clio I'm going to take a Fiesta whatever you do a series in that you learn the tracks you learn the, the 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 format and the sport as it were and you're in a fairly easy car to drive you know relatively speaking 
and, and during that you you learn and you grow and you develop and then but if you are just taking the approach of oh i'm gonna take this car out and just do five minutes and then i've crashed i'll swap and i'll do this and do that and you, you, never won't, gonna... you won't develop yourself as a driver yeah well it's that but you're never going to understand the car as well and like yeah. you just said it takes time yeah. so yeah and that... hence hence my uh forza motorsports um news title when they announced their 500 cars is that it's 500 cars you'll never master yeah <laughs> another um point i wanted to mention on this simon that sort of leads into both of these things because it's a bit of a wish list thing, sim thing for me it's a bit of a game changer potential and it's also it also leads into what we were talking about uh, a few months ago about persistence is that i think we've had this thing where we see the trackers are living breathing thing it's time that the car became yeah. more of a living breathing thing and watching Le Mans last month there was a lot of, there was a point I don't know I was it was late I was watching and they were talking about the, um, the way the cars develop over the 24 hours mm -hmm. so that basically uh, they were talking about the LMT LMP2 cars at the time um, and uh, I think it was um, Alex Brundle of course who's raced out Le Mans in the LMP2 cars so he was talking about how we, you're basically doing the life cycle of the engine in one full 24-hour stint. So for the rest of the season, they race six-hour races, and they will expect to run the engine for 24 hours before replacing it. So throughout the the that specific race, you, they see the engine essentially losing horsepower as it goes. It's um, running its running its oil dry, and you know, uh, another thing he mentioned was that the the dampers become jellified um, as the race goes on. So um, you know, you towards later in the race, you're finding that the car is much more bouncy um, mm. and springy and bouncy. And he, he mentioned various other things, but essentially, and obviously the brakes as well. Um, brakes are something that modern sims are starting to do, especially as Cetacos Competizione with its endurance racing is already looking at this where some you know the brakes will wear and you will have to change your brakes at certain pit stops and things like that i think that we need to be looking at that as the next move forward the tracks we've got the tracks to be um more alive especially when it comes to endurance racing this needs to be more of a thing but also i don't even know if it has to be restricted to endurance racing because if you if you run like i am at the moment the lotus 79 in i racing and you run this this week, next week, the week after. Why isn't why can't that car be persistent? And you know, its brakes start to wear out as it gets to a certain point. I think what we talked about at the time was that maybe a sim needs a certain type of economy in there of either time or money or something that actually gives you some sort of penalty or reason. You know, like if if I'm not in the middle of a race at a pit stop, then why? there's no penalty or issue to me changing brakes so there's no point in it really um but fundamentally the vehicle changes and all of the parts in a vehicle age and they they develop and change as they age and, and a car changes as it goes we all know this from driving cars on the road you know you know that when you're coming up to a service you know if the dampers are feeling a bit squashy or, or you know the brakes are feeling like they're, they're running a bit low and and sure enough, you take it in, and they say, "Oh, think, oh, you're going to need to change all the shocks, mate." Um, 
it's uh, it's completely absent from sim racing, and especially when we were watching a couple of years ago in lockdowns, we were watching you know the virtual Le Mans twenty four hours. They they they're driving around this this brick of a car that it it, it isn't changing over the course of that race, and and the, the big feature of that race is to get the car to the end, but you've got this car that just is going to get to the end. <laughs> It, yeah, it makes me wonder if there's room for randomization too. I, I, I watched a, um, a podcast video uh, from Dale Earnhardt Jr. He has a, a big uh, podcast that he does. Um, and he was talking about how an engine builder had given him one of his engines that he'd won a lot of races with. Um, and he'd, he'd won with that engine because it was a special engine uh, where where basically... Um, they'd put like the, the the header and the pan from different engines together and for some reason when they were all together on that engine it did something special that they never were able to recreate that had never come before um, and it, it, it was built for a completely different kind of racetrack it was built as like a, a, a short track engine and it ended up winning um, most of his Talladega races um, on the you know the big super speedways um, and uh, obviously what that means is that there's a huge variation in engines the instant they're even built. Yep. Um, you know, and, and that's missing from sim racing too, where basically you could line up on the, the starting grid next to another brand new car and they're completely different to you. Like we, we've probably all been to any kind of public Rent, rental car. Somebody mentioned you know, this to me the other day. always get the rubbish one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, there's always a dud. There's always one that goes like a rocket. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's there's <laughs> there's always some difference car to car, and um, you know the, the fact that in sim racing we have this fairness issue where you know everybody's expected to have digitally exactly the same vehicle. Um, you know, I, I I wonder if there's room to not have exactly the same vehicle. But and but maybe part of you know the part of the gameplay could be involved in how well you look after that vehicle and how well you're attending to it. Yeah, how how high have you revved that engine compared to everybody else? Yeah, just, yeah. Just in the last week or so, I I watched a video that John shared with me, and it was um it was about flight simming and um kind of the modelling of the internal sort of functions of the engine and stuff. And the the guy who was talking about it was basically saying. You know, you can you can do it by the numbers, but what are these numbers? You know, what what are these numbers in in real life? And that's the thing. It's like you can have you have stats. You know, this is the capacity, this is the power. But it's like what you know, like you were saying, John, about a Le Mans engine through the race. You know, at what point is that number the real number? Yeah. Really, this is a kind of living, evolving, dynamic thing with lots of bits interacting. As you say, um, Tim, there's you know you can get a dud part and it might fail. Is that fair? Well, it's realistic. And maybe there's a question mm -hmm. here of, do you want to introduce things into your title that are perhaps worse than real life? Or oh, no, sorry, they replicate real life, but actually you don't have to have them, you know? And then there's a question mark of, well, are you chasing ultimate realism or do you want to find some sort of balance where it's, giving you the best possible experience and perhaps there's some compromise there. I mean, I don't, I think I'm a bit indifferent to the idea of kind of randomized mechanical failures. You know, I think if a title had them and I got one, it'd be like, well, tough luck. As long as I could learn 
afterwards was this because i did something wrong or was it a random failure so i know whether to learn from it and adapt or not i think i could i could live with that i also can imagine it's going to be a bit annoying if you're one hour 59 minutes into a two-hour race that you practice that week for and then something goes but again that's what happens in real life isn't it yeah yeah you know one of the major issues that i had with grand prix legends is that i was flat shifting i i i wasn't um lifting or, or clutching when i was shifting um when it first came out and that was because i'd never had to, i'd never had to do that before um i don't feel the same about you now tim i'll never look at you the same yeah way. it's absolutely outrageous that was one <laughs> of the things that grand prix legends taught me um Did, i take uh, it you didn't have your driving license at this no. point yeah <laughs> okay. no i didn't so yeah i i had never come across that before do you have an interesting um, first driving lesson then tim <laughs> <laughs> well uh by the time I got my driver's license, I could drive pretty much anything because obviously I'd done a lot of simulation work at that point. But uh, but yeah, it, it kind of I used to blow engines all all the time in in Grand Prix Legends, um, and it, it took me on a, a disappointingly large amount of time to actually figure out that it was me that was causing that. And and you know, it, in what you're saying, I. I I think if you had failures that were your fault, I think that should be in every sim right now. Mm. Um, you know, but if it's random, I, there's you know that's where the fairness factor comes in, um, because you could have one person be randomly the person that it happens to ten times in a row, mm. while you could have one other person randomly not have a failure ten times in a row. Um, you know, and and that that means that they would have to, you know, make sure that it's fair, and then what's what's the point? Because it was fair before you did this. Yeah, I think you know, like in real motorsport, people say you know it evens itself out, right? For instance, you know, yeah. in, in twenty sixteen, Lewis Hamilton had more mechanical failures than Nico Rosberg, but in twenty fifteen, it was the other way around. You know, so these things even themselves out, but sometimes they don't and sometimes people are just unlucky right and and mm -hmm. if you're in the sim you're there going why is it always me but i seem to remember Kramen's grand prix 2 had this feature and i had it enabled i run a i ran a full championship i recall and did suffer a couple of mechanical failures that were yeah essentially randomized um and it was a little bit infuriating but i mean i think some of the best video games i've played been known to be a bit infuriating you know the difficulty yeah, the or the challenge dark souls the, type dark stuff, souls yeah. exactly is a classic example yeah. there are you know some boss that, that that might just one hit you and then you know then there's the other time you take them on and and you're a bit luckier with that and you you got the swipe and, and you and you you beat them um so there is an element of luck there with the you know random number generator i think it would be more annoying in an online situation against other people uh, than it is against AI in a, in a sort of on offline championship but it would be an, it'd be annoying either way but at the end of the day you know this is how we learn to take it on the chin it's annoying enough in online racing when somebody just runs into you right on on the kind of game changes thing and sort of being a bit more forward forward looking one thing that I kind of saw a month or two back was this um this demonstration of this kind of AI-driven real-time commentary by um, Inline4. And it, it did get me thinking, 
you could imagine if you start introducing a lot more of this kind of complexity to the car modeling and stuff, and it would depend a bit on what series you're in, but you then opening yourself up to having perhaps AI engineer on the pit wall telling you you need to be shifting lower RPM, or you could imagine having an AI mechanic who takes your car apart at the end and says, well, yeah, the reason you didn't finish, Tim, is because you were flat shifting every time or something like that. Yeah, yeah it would you have know, been so, helpful. And I think, I think you know, there's the, the sort of, the, the scope for technologies like that to kind of complement the gaming experience are, are kind of massive. But it, it, I do think the one of the challenges when you start introducing the complexity to the car is then you have the question of well, what what do you do about that in the game? You know, are you going to have to go and click up? And we talked about this before, but it's like, you know, okay, your, your car's wearing out. What do you do about that? Or your car's getting damaged. What do you do about that? And I do think there's possibly a, you know, shy of your dream, Tim, which is having 20 friends join you as a virtual pit crew and stuff. Perhaps, you know, there's a there's scope here for some AI-driven or, you know, powered kind of functionality there that could give you sort of a slightly more dynamic feedback on the dynamic experience you're having. Or a bit of both, you know, if you've only got three friends, then... <laughs> You get you get three friends to do the you know do each role and whatever and you have AI fill in the rest of the gaps. Yeah, that's why I'm quite excited for um, the upcoming B seventeen games. You know, to go off at a complete tangent is because there's there's a uh, there's one that they're developing where you can play the VR part of one of the crew and you can have nine other friends play nine other crew. Um, so yeah, um, yeah. I'm I'm looking forward to the bit where we try and organise all nine of us getting together. Yeah, all bit actually being available. We might be able to do it once. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I think that's about all we got time for today. Um, it's been fun chatting, Simon and Tim. Um, Tim, what's the best way for people to get in touch with Race Sim Central if they would like to ask questions? Well, uh, we're at racesimcentral.net. Um, we have a, a website, forum. Um, we're on Instagram and everywhere else. Uh, you can um, obviously email. Uh, you should be able to find that in the info on wherever you're listening to this podcast. Um, or if not, you can use the contact form on the website or the forums. Um, yeah, you can find us pretty much anywhere you want. Just search for Racing Central. Jump on the old school forums and uh, get things... Get the get the discussion moving because it's not yep. really been moving that much, has it? Nope. <laughs> okay, guys. Well, thanks for listening. We'll uh, see you next time. Bye.